0: Hi friends, this is Dr. Michael Williams, and welcome back to another episode of the Diversify Path Podcast. This podcast explores how investing in diversity can lead to a high return of investment in pathology and laboratory medicine by learning from the knowledge and experiences of diverse voices within our field. My next guest is Dr. Jorge Novo. Dr. Novo was born in Guadalajara, Mexico, and moved to the United States when he was 16 years old. He graduated from the University of Texas Health Science Center at Houston Medical School, now known as the McGovern Medical School at UT Health. He completed his residency in anatomic and clinical pathology at Rush University Medical Center, following fellowship training in breast pathology at Northwestern Feinberg School of Medicine and gynecologic pathology at John Hopkins Hospital. He returned to Chicago as an assistant professor at Northwestern Memorial Hospital in 2019. Jorge enjoys the academic life, teaching residents, while exploring new music genres, and talking classical music, movie scores, and random topics. His interests include education-based research, quality improvement, global health, breast decipia, ovarian neoplasms, and trophoblastic disease. While not being a pathologist, he enjoys weight training, tattoos, taking care of his numerous plants, trying new restaurants, feed his coffee addiction, and movies. Without further ado, here's Dr. Jorge Novo.
1: Alright, hi again friends, this is Michael Williams with another episode of the Diversifying Path Podcast. I'm here with my next guest, so can you tell us who you are, uh, where you are from, and your pronouns?
2: Hello, my name is Jorge Novo and I am a pathologist center at our Western Memorial. I am originally from Guadalajara, Mexico, and my pronouns are he, his.
1: All right, so uh, can you tell us what got you into pathology and medicine in general?
2: Well, pathology was a uh, surprise for me because I, I had to go through soap. I was originally an ENT applicant back in at UT Houston in 2013. And, uh, you know, despite doing all the right things, you know, checking all the boxes on, on paper, numerous interviews, in the end, you know, you get the news that you never wanna hear, which is, uh, you know, sorry, you did not match. So after some very difficult three days of uh, pondering what my future is gonna be like, you know, I found a spot at Rush University in Chicago and I said, well, you know, we'll just take the leap in it. And, uh, I mean, I'll be honest, I hated pathology for two and a half years. I really hated it. And, uh, you know, morally recovering from that loss, but now it's a, such a newfound joy what I'm doing right now. And, you know, retrospectively, you know, the, with the, the retroscope always shows everything was obvious and great. But. I think now I'm the best career choice I could have. Okay. You know, I just
1: wanted to step back a bit, um, and I wanted you to tell us, tell us about um, you growing up in, in Mexico, and then you coming, uh, I don't know if this is, and if, correct me if I'm wrong, um, training in the States, and like the difference in the healthcare mm-hmm. system, um, in that aspect.
2: Well, I moved to the states when I was sixteen. I am one of four siblings. I am the second oldest. You know, the the soggy lettuce of the sandwich. You know, have an older brother, so the firstborn, a younger brother, the baby, and then there's a sister, the only girl. So I end up being the soggy lettuce in the middle. Mm -hmm. And uh, both my parents have been teachers. Um, That's the reason why we moved to the states. You know, they had a visa program for bilingual teachers needed in, in Houston. And that's how I moved to the state when I was 16. And at that point, you know, I finished my my college here. I did my med school in Houston, and you know, that's where my career took off. Okay, gotcha.
1: So, what what got you interested in doing, like, in applying, like, medicine to begin with?
2: That has been uh, always since I've been a little kid. That's always been my dream. You know, Mm -hmm. I've always been interested by the human body. I remember very vividly this uh, National Geographic documentary called the human body, and I would watch it over and over and over again, and uh, it was always very fascinating to see things at the microscopy level, and I have also a very vivid memory of uh, me as a kid, my first encounter with a microscope was my own blood, Um, Mm. I was playing in my grandfather's house, I, you know, a little too curious, found some razors, and I cut myself, and I go to my mom crying, oh my god, you know, like I cut myself, and then my grandfather and my mom to the opportunity, like, hey, why don't we put it under the microscope? Because he he was an engineer, and there was a microscope from one of my uncles, he's a pathologist, at at the house, and I saw my red blood cell for the first time, and I thought that was such a magical moment that just got me to be more interested in the human body.
1: Oh, that is awesome. I mean, to have that experience, you know, like, um, at that age, where if, like, I feel like I had that, or anybody else haven't, and they're like cutting themselves. just like, okay, get a band aid in and then, you know, move on from there. But to, to <laughs> like kind of see, you know, what makes us up on the cellular level, that's like pretty awesome, basically.
2: Wow, well, I mean, we didn't have any stains for it, but I mean, right. you can still see the individual shapes of the cell, which that's yeah. still fascinating enough,
1: yeah. So, so what, um, because I always like to delve into to to history, what, um, what during med school said okay? Let me go into ENT. Like, what? Why ENT at
3: first?
2: Well, I felt that uh, it was uh, that surgically, I think the head and neck is the most interesting part of the body.
3: Mm-hmm. You know,
2: raising this is complexity, and always been interested on the problems that arise from the head and neck region. You know, hearing, voice. Uh, it's just such a your face itself. You know, they're such integral parts of who we are as a person. Mm-hmm. And dealing with those problems, I feel that, you know, it's not only very uh, satisfactory, you know, in a sense of, you know, providing that kind of patient care, but also the balance, you know, from clinical, from surgical, uh, from follow-up. I thought that was a very interesting topic that it was very impactful.
1: Okay. Wow. And, and I guess, you know, it's a transition from uh, for which we said earlier um, about you going to pathology and hating it. You know, I just wanted to make a statement about for most of us, we
2: don't
1: we don't see pathology as students so unless we're like learning for step one and for step one. For the most of part. course. And then you go through and you are just like, OK, like medicine or surgery. And that's what for the most part people see. But um, I feel like the experience is like for you, for example, when you're like when you got you, you met, you soaked into it and it just wasn't your you felt like it wasn't the field for you at first. Um, what were other thoughts and feelings like why was it so like I guess something that it didn't click for you at first?
2: Well I felt like from the very beginning I wanted to be surgery you know mm-hmm. I like the idea of being a cutter you know do or don't there's no tries in between and uh, I always wanted that idea of you know, being able to be a fixer I have been very manual as a person you know like whether it comes to arts When it comes to gardening, you know, I was being very manual, and I felt that that was a better fit. In the end, I didn't like clinical medicine that much, you know, since I couldn't really deal with the uncertainty of medicine, which Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of people don't uh, consider it, you know, like, this patient comes in that has low platelets, you know, well, is that just how the way you are? Do you have a raging leukemia waiting to be manifested, or you have ITP, Mm -hmm. or you have DIC, and you, you could die soon? So I felt, you know, and then ordering labs and waiting for things to happen, somebody else to tell me what to do. I never was very comfortable with that side. I wanted to be more of a, you know, this is the problem, I'm seeing it right in front of me, and I know how to fix it. So that's why surgery was originally my my first drive, and especially ENT. And on second play was OBGYN. Same thing for that mix of clinical, surgical, as well as <clears throat> as well as uh, the ability to have very impactful. Uh, outcomes with your interventions
1: okay so what what was the transition point where you were just like i know you said it's two and a half years but what was the moment where you're like i actually feel like this is more for me and like that you felt like
2: it was more for you like in terms of pathology yeah so i felt like you know i think the first couple of years it was mostly me getting over my grief I suppose, you know, it's something that I, everybody that goes into the medical field, we all have these very big dreams and aspirations. We put our blood, sweat, and tears to accomplish to um, our goals. And then suddenly, despite your best efforts, despite everything looking good, somebody mm-hmm. tells you, you know what, it's not going to work. And there's really not much you can do other than Deal with your grief, especially when you're suddenly thrown. in. By the way, you have two hours from the moment you got your letter to start submitting new applications. Mm-hmm. So whatever plans you had before and your entire future that you were envisioning now is dead. Yeah. Do you want to try to do a resident, a research year? Do you want to do an in- surgical internship somewhere else and try again, or do you want to flip, switch your entire future that you were mm-hmm. envisioning? So mm-hmm. I think that itself is a very traumatic experience for soap, uh, for those that undergo the process of soap.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So I think the best advice is, you know, like you're applying for a high specialty, you need to keep in mind a uh, backup plan, no matter how good it looked.
1: Yeah.
2: So I was gonna say like, once that, you know, start residency in pathology and being thrown into this foreign landscape. Um, you know, just getting used to the idea of like, okay, I need to start getting good at this or, you know, first, you know, feeling frustrated. I don't know what I'm looking at. What are mm-hmm. these cells? Mm-hmm. All my reports were wrong. Like, what am I even doing here? And it was, right. I mean, I had to be honest. I had to go seek counseling and yeah. get help, you know, to be able to go through this process. But I think once I came to realization, you know, like, okay, no, it's Okay. What we're going through, you have healed. Uh, the scars are there, but you have healed and starting to realize, you know, like how much more fun it is. You know, you not only you get to find the objective answer to the problem, what's going on, but you get to have the most impactful intervention in medicine, which is the truth. You give yeah. the patient the truth, and once I start understanding that uh, aspect of pathology, I think that's what got me really into it, and now yeah. I absolutely love it.
3: Yeah.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, I, I mean, I I love old stories. I love your story for sure, too. And, you know, to piggyback on, on that experience, like that, that also happened to me, too. I I was applying for surgery. I thought I was going to do surgery and that was going to be for me. And going through that soap process um, was, it It was, it was, it is, and was traumatic. You know, essentially when you're just like interviewing everywhere you can and you're trying to basically the best that you're going for you know for those who are applying to med school currently in med school or not in med school at all but hear stories you in a way build yourself up to say i'm gonna go and apply and do this specialty because that's what i see myself doing in the future and then you build you do everything research papers whatever to build up and then you apply and you don't get it and it's like and you know this is fourth year so you're like what happened in the past four years for me to be at this point and then you have yeah, the, the two hours. Um, I think when I did it, it was just like I found out. And then yeah, you have the two or three hours where you're look, looking at programs that have open spots, and you have to get everything in by Friday um, because oh, well, when it was Wednesday for me, but like Fridays. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Wednesday's the first
2: round. Of Wednesday's
1: stuff. the first round, and I, I actually wanted to to share another experience too that I haven't you know said, and we'll go back to you, but. Um, When I applied to surgery, there was one program I I applied to during the SOAP process. And I talked to the program director and they were like, yeah, it's great. You know, we can't wait to see, you know, rank us, click us. And, you know, you'll be here and you'll be like, you know, at this institution um, as an intern. It'll be, you know, we'll make sure to click on you and make sure that you come in. And that never happened. So I was kind of also putting all my like, I even this one basket where it was like, you know and then nothing happened and then i'm still like you know struggling so it was really like a traumatic experience especially with other people who didn't unfortunately were in that position and you're seeing like tears and people just like trying to still figure <laughs> out what happened over the past four years you know like yeah so i, I completely understand you know in that aspect what you, you know, that that your experience um but yeah,
2: right. It's literally holding back tears. Or so you're interviewing people. Hey, do you want to do this? And you're just half lying to yourself. Yes, I want to do this right, at this right. place. So it, it's almost, uh, I don't know, there's a more humane way of having the soap uh, mm-hmm. process work because it is you know, like, I, you know, you're going through this terrible experience. And at the same time, now you've got to pick something. Otherwise, you're going to have nothing. So, yes, yeah. I mean, all the the programs want to feel You don't want to feel empty. So, I don't want to say, is there any particular way to make this process better and less traumatic? Yeah, yeah,
1: I I wish. I don't I, I, I wish there was something that was there. You know, because you felt, for me, I felt so isolated. I mean, I know all the people were there, but there was this feeling of isolation, like you felt at everything you did. Like everything leading up, getting to med school, applying, I mean, getting in... Um, you know, four years, and then after four years, it's like, there's nothing to show. And, you know, if you don't, mm-hmm. if you're not going into something throughout that soap process, like, it's considered, quote unquote, a red flag, where you're just basically trying to figure out, like, if you don't get into a, a program during the soap process, then you have to find out how do you transition throughout the year and make it so that you have a, quote unquote, better application when you're applying again. So, um, mm-hmm. but yeah. Uh, and then I also wanted to say, like, for your experience, too, and for everybody else who's listening. Um, because, yeah, I mean, not everybody goes into the med school and think about pathology. For me, um, it, you know, everybody's heard my story before, but for you, it's like, you know, you, you're like, okay, what does this field? How can, am I going to be able to thrive while you're still dealing with, like, the, I guess, emotional traumatic experience of, of, of this, that process? And I guess, I don't know, mm-hmm. I'm trying to tell people <laughs> over because I'm, like, you know, we're re- reverberating on it, but, like, it, it's definitely one of the experiences I still remember, and I'm, like... That and you know, good for you for going to counseling and then like getting into pathology. And you know, now you're here and doing well, so awesome. Um, so yeah, I you know, I guess I wanted to transition to like, um, so you're getting you're like loving the field that you're in, um, and what did you do fellowship in it and why?
2: I did it, so I did my residency at Rush University for four years in APCP. And the first fellowship I did was Breast Pathology at Northwestern. I, I really enjoy breast because it's uh, one like, one of those like, very impactful things that I, you know, I like to see myself that I'm doing something with my work, you know, something that creates a difference in someone's life. And I think breast is, uh, I guess, a more limited spectrum of disease, but it's very methodical. It's very precise, you know, like, you know, imaging, you know, you have to do, be a true multidisciplinary physician you have to understand imaging, you have to understand surgery, you have to understand treatment, radiology, radiation oncology, put it all together into one report that unifies all those things. And that's what I really enjoy about press uh, pathology. I think it's, uh, it, it, it's very precise and I enjoyed you know, that nitty gritty detail of it. And then my second fellowship was in gynecology pathology at Johns Hopkins mm-hmm. when I did also just one year. And obviously, I feel is the complete opposite. A breast, you know, it's not as precise because actually it's still very heavy morphology based. You know, we not we don't have the whole molecular classification system that we do in heme pad or in neuropath. Mm-hmm. but right, it's still very morphology based, there's a lot of gray zones, and mm-hmm. that challenge of diversity, that's what really attracted me to OBGYN. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. We-
1: um, I was like, shout out to neuropathology. I'm a neuropath fellow,
2: so I'm like, shout out, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> hey, y'all. Yeah. Neuropath uh, was my second choice after breast and guy. Uh,
1: so what happened to uh, head and neck? Like, did you, like, was it breast and and Like, you fell in love with, like, more during the process, or?
2: Second specialty choice in medical school was Soviet and I always found it very interesting, especially the ovaries, I think, are the coolest organs in the body. Sorry, brain. Over are way cooler, and uh, you know, something the prenatal, you know, trophoblastic disease. I think it's yeah. just the whole process of pregnancy is fascinating. I I just think it's fascinating.
1: But I, you know, I, I guess I wanted to talk about the transition from you being a fellow to attending hood. How long have you been an attending for?
2: Now, this I'm starting my third year, so I'm okay. two and a half years in as an attending. So I gotta say, like I think uh, I got the advantage of uh, Hopkins, uh, Johns Hopkins. The fellowship was essentially instructor level position. So I think my real transition to attending her happened on my first year of on my second year of fellowship, because within two days of arriving at Hopkins, it's like first of all I still don't know how to use your EMR, and anybody that did a fellowship there up to the year 2018 knows that their EMR is this MS-DOS command-based system that you gotta type commands and move, like, you know, like run gross, run this, you know, sign out. Mm-hmm. It's a completely different system. And uh, from, you know, from two days after that, by the way, you're still getting your badges and thinks, oh, by the way, you're start signing up now. It, mm-hmm. it really is, uh, you, you know, being not just thrown off the edge or catapulted off the nest, uh, you start calling frozens within a week,
3: mm-hmm. you start
2: signing out in-house within a month, and uh, I, it really is um, a lot of hand-holding, and I think that's what I appreciate very much my GYN faculty there, you know, my shout-outs to Dr. Ronette, Dr. Bang. Uh, I, you know, it's a lot, you know, like, hey, can I show you every biopsy? um, that I have, could you hold my hand and tell me that I am not wrong. And I call a hand holding because you know, I'm, I'm, I know what I'm doing. I should need someone to hold my hand and tell me everything is okay. So I think after like, you know, a couple of months, you know, being thrown into the, you know, off the nest, you start flying, you know, it's like, okay, I'm getting the hang of it. I know what, uh, what needs to be worked up. I know what can let, you can let go. I think those are probably the two most important skills as a faculty member you know besides gaining confidence in yourself
1: Hmm. Hmm. yeah i you know agree and then for like pathology residents or fellows who are listening to this or any other fellows listening to this in different fields yeah I, you know i asked that question because there's that transition like for me from residency to fellowship which took me a while and then i'm sure for other for, for others like listening now who are about to transition to attending hood it's like What happens next, you know, like, are you on by yourself or do you have somebody who's going to kind of like what you're saying, like holding your hand for a bit before you start developing your own ways of approaching cases and stuff like that. So, you agree.
2: Yeah, I will say that I got incredibly lucky on that regard. Um, I was offered a position at Northwestern, you know, where I currently am practicing, Mm -hmm. before I finished my first fellowship. So, I even knew a year ahead of time that I was coming back to Chicago. And one of the reasons why I immediately accepted that position is because I really loved the people I work with. And it's especially that what you're looking for in a junior member. You know, they were always there listening, always there to show me I could show any case as a fellow and I knew that I was gonna be supported through that process. Yeah. at the beginning something I was showing almost every biopsy. Every breast biopsy, you know, because I was a little rusty when I came back. To my other faculty members, and I still do it to this day. I go knock on the door. Hey, can I can. Can you hold my hand and tell me that I'm oh, not nice. overcalling this? <laughs> um, and mm-hmm. I think you know that ability to demonstrate that vulnerability to your knowledge. You know yeah. that doubt is very important as a pathologist because there's nothing more dangerous than an overconfident pathologist oh. that uh, wants to look tough, that wants to look independent. It's okay to say no or I don't know, and uh, oh. that is the beginning of you know. Of um, good change that you can create in your reports, you know, like if you admit to yourself, I have no idea what I'm doing. It's the first step towards doing the the right thing. And uh, I'm very grateful for the colleagues that I have at Northwestern. Yeah. And I try to create that for the other new junior faculty joining us, as well as you know my residents and the fellows.
1: That's that's awesome. Um, like to hear that and hear that said openly, because I feel like in residency even if we transition back to med school where you have you see attendings you're just like oh they know it all and like you know Mm -hmm. that's about it where you're like learning and still basically being the best that you can be at that attending hood um stage and working at um northwestern like university were there were there any like hesitations especially working at such a big academic institution or um what was your experience like
2: I will say my biggest fear was research, you know, because everybody, well, you're an you got to publish, you know. Yeah. We have this idea of publish or die in the academic world. And honestly, that was my biggest concern when I started. Yeah. But uh, as I found out when I moved in, you know, that nobody was really expecting me to get anything done or like, a, mm-hmm. you know, a large amount of papers coming out. You know, because I was like, oh, my God, how am I going to come up with all these ideas?
3: Right.
2: But as you start practicing, you know, start getting, you know, into the rhythm of the academic world, you know, the more you practice and you sign out, the more you start realizing, hey, you know, I keep encountering this issue. Mm Has anybody looked this up? And if you are having that question, I'm sure other pathologists are having the same question. And that's when you start creating your own ideas. And I think what a lot of people forget about, especially in the academic world, you know, when they're like afraid, like academia is you don't have to be a heavy researcher you know especially at least where we are at northwestern you know like the different uh, promotion paths that you can take mm-hmm. you know you don't need to be a heavy researcher you don't need to be doing this bench research you know there's many ways to be promoted and to grow in in, in academic medicine yeah. and uh first and what i found the most that i'm passionate about but clinical practice you know i like to be uh you know be heavy on work and two on education and that's where i have focused a lot of my research and as well as in quality improvement and i think that has not only you know when they say you when you find something that you really like you just yeah. enjoy it and i think i finally found that niche in research that i really enjoy and then after that the ideas just keep flowing and flowing now i need more brains and hands to type than <laughs> than than i have at the moment okay but yes. So, I will say, like, whoever is becoming a new attending, yeah, it's going to be okay. Like, you will get your ideas and you will get there. Just keep mm-hmm. in track, keep in mind, how do you get promoted so you can stop worrying? Well, I don't need to have a million papers, I don't need to be entirely fully funded. Right. There's so many ways to do research nowadays.
1: Oh, wow. You know, and I, I, I want to pause on that for a bit because I want to go back to it. But um, can you tell us what it's like sending out with you, like, when you're approaching cases? Uh, with residents what is it like sending out with
2: you well the first thing i tell when somebody starts with me it goes back to uh, that point of vulnerability you know the first thing i tell them there's no such thing as a dumb question if you have to ask is that nucleolus looking funny could you go back over normal uh ovarian histology could you show me what a normal terminal doctor unit looks like that is a valid question because that is already a self-identified gap in the learner mm-hmm. so if you we cannot even address those basic points they're not going to understand what a typical doctor hyperplasia looks like or how to tell apart germ cell tumors mm-hmm. so i think the first thing i do for my sign-out is let the reassure the resident or the fellow or whoever's signing out with me that it's okay to show that vulnerability in knowledge because that is the point that we can take as a base okay so that's where your deficiencies are now we can focus sign up in improving those efficiencies Mm -hmm. so i try to do more of um. one allow every question is a good question and two focus you know once we identify those gaps focus the signer on teaching that on the sites you know all right so we don't know much about endometrial hyperplasia well all right let's go let's talk about endometrial hyperplasia how do we get it who gets it how does it look like how do you diagnose it what's your differential I pull out from my collection of slides. You know, like all right, well now we let's say for example we just saw what a complete mold looks like. Now let me show you a partial mold. Let me show you a hydropic one. So at that point it becomes you know like on the spot topical relevant topics that you're learning on the spot. So I that's how I like to approach my learning, and uh, and then finishing sign out as well as, uh, as preparing for my sign out is let them. Be independent. I think that's also another big thing that I'm trying to do. Also, I'm the director of surgical pathology at Northwestern of the rotation. Oh, okay. okay. So it's been my baby this past year, you know, starting from scratch, the rotation. Okay. And a big emphasis has been on creating a sense of independence and gradual responsibility. You know, get you ready to be that attending, signing out. And it comes to making your own decisions. So that's why, you know, immunostains, workups, I have to give them freedom. I may not agree with everything they do, but it is an important step Mm -hmm. to get them to be free and slowly push them up the nest and not catapult them out.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: I completely agree, especially now when you're in a fellowship where, or say senior year residency um, or fellowship where you're just like, all right, like those fundamentals of, of residency where you're like, okay, I've seen this, or I kind of experienced it like this. And you're kind of thinking more about differentials or stains that can help you out, um, instead of being sort of like, I don't know, like stuck, and You're just like, wait, what's happening right now uh, in that way? Like it does help you in the long run, like see that you're progressing, even though if you don't see it like right there and then it does mm-hmm. help in the long run. So yeah, I, I that's, that's
2: amazing. Um, it's been a to fun to... experiment this from this last july you know like mm-hmm. revamping a whole surgical a whole rotation yeah and uh it's been very fruitful i'm looking forward to these six-month evaluations because i'm hoping to see some dramatic changes yeah. In there, but, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I'm being very proud of my work and I uh, mm-hmm. appreciate the residents I have been putting up with all my changes every block. <laughs> by the way, now we're going to change that. Now we're going to change that. You know, as we mm-hmm. see issues arise, you know,
3: yeah. it'd
2: be important to be responsive to those changes and issues and not let it fester.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I, I wanted to um, go back to the discussion about um, faculty in academia. Is there any advice you can give um, those listening, regardless of what field they're in, um, about applying for a job in
2: academia or like looking for what fits you? Uh, for jobs in academia, I, I was going to say, like I am the one lucky person that had a job before I even started.
3: Mm-hmm. Before
2: I started, finished my fellowships, I already had a job lined up. I guess they like me enough, and I like them enough. But I mean, <laughs> for people that are applying for academia, I think it's so important, you know, when especially when I see people applying for a job with us, you know, I see them do their presentations. It's so important to come up as a, uh, because the fact that you're being interviewed, that means you're good enough on paper and they know that you can do the job. Mm -hmm. But it's just that interpersonal uh, impact that you make when you interview, the way you speak, the way you uh, behave, the way that you sound confident in a presentation as you're giving, you know, presenting your own research. It is so critical because I mean, as much as we don't want to be judged, you know, we judge people based how they present.
3: Right, um,
2: you right. know, like, do you sound confident? Do you seem shy? Are you making eye contact? I think, you know, we like to think, you know, or at least the cliche is that pathologists are antisocial creatures.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, like mm-hmm. we live in a basement pushing glass. You know, like we don't see daylight. Um,
1: <laughs> We're vampires, but or something in the
2: end, like you know, that. we are still. The most important things that you do as a faculty member, and then as you grow as a resident fellow as well, mm-hmm. is that networking. It's being able to communicate well, to make connections, and apply that when you're interviewing. Whether it's a medical interview, a residency, or fellowship, or job interview, you have to present yourself as somebody that is interested in the job, someone that is amicable, approachable, mm-hmm. and more than anything, you know, like, can I see, can I tolerate seeing your face every day? You know, for an indefinite amount of time. Because mm-hmm. everybody's good on paper. But how mm-hmm. are you as a person? Right,
1: right. The, the human aspect, I feel like, somewhat... is it, not... Maybe when I was training in med school, um, maybe it, it was overlooked or just not really something that we paid attention to during training. Because, um, again, it was just like, we have to get good grades, see patients, but that was a part of getting good grades and basically yeah. applying or whatever specialty we were going for. Um right. and then, you know all if, the
2: questions the attending asks
1: you. Yeah. Right, right, all of that, the, the, the stress of that, and you know, you're just like, you know, all that. And then years later, let's say your, your residency and, and, and fellowship and being an attending and wherever you're at in the you know educational career spectrum, um, you know, that aspect, I feel like I hope doesn't get lost amongst people who are training uh, and I feel like at times we don't really value that or look at it too much um, because it's like what you're saying in a way about looking good in paper, looking good at getting good scores. And then that's what defines you as being a good doctor or whatever professional um, field that you work in and stuff like that. So, yeah, I, I was going to say I agree with the with with being a, the great interpersonal skills of being a, a human person. Uh, so I did have a question um about mentorship and also mentorship with uh, people of color and diverse populations. And wanted to get your perspective and thoughts about that and how, about that.
2: So uh, I think, you know, since I started, you know, I wanted to, um, especially, you know, given my, my experiences matching and growing into pathology, um, when I got into Northwestern, I was the only Latino faculty member in the entire pathology department, and mm. I wanted to like well I so said how can we improve and make sure that our department reflects the populations that we serve? We might not see them you know in person you know unless they are in our autopsy bench, but I think one of those ways to accomplish is is through mentorship, and mm. I have a Interestingly, Twitter has been a, <clears throat> a great source of mentorship. You know, reaching out to a, you know, or individuals reaching out to me regarding a mentorship opportunities or guidance. You know, like seeing, oh my god, there's a there's one medical student at Rush Medical uh, Rush University mm-hmm. that uh, you know like reached out to me. You know, so like, oh my god, it's great seeing another Mexican a Mexican physician that I can actually talk to and ask questions. Yeah, and uh, I think that it starts. You know, such as a simple basic connection, because in the end, medicine has a lot of connections that you need to know. You need to develop, and it's difficult to put your foot on the door. By the way, hey, I'm going to walk in your door. Hey, I am Doctor X, and I want to follow you. So, for instance, what I did for this medical student is connect him to one of our transplant surgeons because he's interested in these topics. Is we have a Latino transplant surgery program at Northwestern, and you know, oh, that wow. was like such an impactful experience for yeah. such a simple conversation. You mm-hmm. interview my mentee, Alcino, yes. and same thing, you know, it has been guiding through the process of immigration, moving to a whole new country, under, going from a previous specialty in nephrology to a pathology. So in yeah. the end, you know, we have that uh, similarity and I can provide that guidance.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And mm-hmm. mentorship is not even, you know, like, well, you know, do I need to uh, give you opportunity for networking? Instead? But sometimes it's just even listening to concerns, you know, the adjustment to a new city, to a new country. And uh, sometimes you're saying, "Who do, who can I ask about this thing? You know, I mm-hmm. want to do this kind of research. Who can I talk to?" And you, being that person, hey, by the way, I know this uh, this other, I know this ment this person. You know, I think he wants to do research with you. And that connection alone, you know, starts opening doors that otherwise would not be possible.
1: hmm hmm That's that's amazing. Like, do all that. And then this was they reached out to you like through social media, and they found you and like. Had that discussion with you that's that's awesome Is yeah yeah stuff?
2: just through twitter and instagram um, are, are you um
1: i guess i wouldn't i'm gonna ask because i'm curious when you realized you were the only latino faculty at um at nau were there ways or things that you wanted to do to increase that representation as well
2: um i mean one of the things that i think every you know, when it comes to brown or indigenous people, uh, mm-hmm. when it comes to medicine, you have to be in the admission committees. I think that's perhaps the single most important thing you can do. Mm-hmm. Because if you are the one, you know, helping move the balances in one way or another, you know, like you see this one individual that you find inspirational, that is extremely yeah. well accomplished, you can push those scales when mm-hmm. you're in the admission committees. You know, I like to be in both the medical school and the residency admission committees for. Northwestern. And, uh, it's been great, you know, connecting with these individuals and seeing like, you know, inspire them, you know, let's say, do you want to come here? You know, I can, you know, like you've done the work. I know you can do it. How can I help you get here? Yeah. And the best way to do it is when you're in an admission committee, it is a lot of work. I mean, I'm not going to lie. Interviewing from medical school is painful, not because I love meeting the people. It's just the paperwork i yeah. reading extremely long applications of people yeah. that are a thousand times more accomplished than me at this point. <laughs> you're like, you're, a medic, you're in school. You're, yeah, in, you you're in college and you already have far more papers than I have. How did you do this? I mean, like some of these stories and individuals are so accomplished. Like, I think if I applied to med school right now, I would not get in. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. with the degree of some of the competitiveness of this individual, which is just absolutely inspiring. Wow! Yeah, yeah. But I think that will. Oh, yeah. be... No, i oh, to no, no, go say like, I think that's why you know, so like when it comes to increasing our diversity, it's being part of those that work that you have to get in. The second yeah. one being you know community. Like what programs out there that we can inspire people to join in? You know, I mean for for that Matt student that told me you know it's great seeing somebody that looks like me
3: mm-hmm.
2: that is so good in in a, in a good hospital in a good academic position. And that inspiration can create change, can create motivation to go into a particular topic, particular field, whether it's medicine or engineering or any other, you know, yeah. like highly specialized job.
3: Hmm. Wow.
1: Yeah. It, you you have to see somebody to like that looks like you in order to feel like you are wanted in that. I guess in that program or area or field, mm-hmm. for example. You know, and I guess that's why I bring up about the academic institution and, and that because there's always statistics and stuff going about how um, talking or discussing about there's just like a lack of minority academic positions that are around and so to have somebody who's actually doing it and to show people that they can do it like you know that's pretty great um that you're able to mm. you know show and, and put that back working for people to come forward and hopefully you know enter those doors as well too no i
2: guess I mean, one of the things I just loved, uh, just mentioning, talking about, I mean, same thing, is that uh, updating surgical, I mean, as rotation director, and uh, I guess on the world of academics in pathology, when it comes to education, and uh, that's a topic that I have been very passionate about for the past year of planning. And I think, uh, especially, it's very important to have those young voices, young directors you yeah. know, taking new positions because he is more willing to create change.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, you know, because it's very easy for a program director that is not open to change or a chairman or a director, you know, it's like, well, you know, things have been working fine, so why do we need to reinvent
3: mm-hmm. what we do?
2: Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, it's important, you know, like, especially for junior faculty, you know, like, hey, do you want to be director of this? You know, take the leap, you know, just do right. it. You can, you will learn it on the job, I promise, because I had <laughs> no idea how to be a director <laughs> of anything. <laughs> And I say, Oh by the way, now you're gonna handle the biggest and most central rotation of pathology. And you're <laughs> going to deal with all these issues that have been going on. Mm. So I think, you know, when it comes to uh, creating those changes, yeah. It's very important to uh, you know, listening to the residents. I think, mm-hmm. you know, as they say, listen to the workhorses. Um, they mm-hmm. know what's going on. So it's not just the residents but also the PAs, the search you know, the text. Working, you know, the ones that run the hospital, and how can we make it better in a way that, uh, you know, you know, like many of the things have been, especially you know, in in programs that have you know bad reputations, no, and I think every program has issues, Mm -hmm. and it Mm -hmm. just comes from a lack of listening because I think it's very easy, you know, for certain administrative positions to say, oh, you know what, you know, I hear you, yes, don't worry, we're going to do something about it, and then nothing nothing happens. Nothing is more discouraging or damaging to a program that refuses to listen and take change. So I think, you know, when I took over, yeah. it was just a lot of interviews, a lot of surveys, you know, a lot of data collection to see, you know, where are the main issues? What can I do to fix it? And came up with a whole new rotation schedule for the rest. you. The- it's a six day cycle, which is my baby. It's mm. going to get published. I'm, you know, putting in posters, <gasps> the Academy of, you know, pathology shares. Very interested data that we have obtained and satisfaction and ACGME milestones. So it's been uh, very satisfying, you know, take the opinion from the residents. You know, Like, well, you know, I don't like Searchpad versus turning into a, this is a thousand times better. Right. You know, and it's great just being to see that change that, you know, that that I can see smiles on people's faces in Searchpad now. How Mm. many parents can say that? (laughs) They have to smile in Searchpad.
1: I know, and I, I know the audience will be able to see it. But he has this big smile on his face right now. He is loving it, loving it. When did you did somebody approach you for this position back uh, when you first started, or was it something that you uh, volunteered to be a part of?
2: That was the residency program directors uh, who approached me first to, you know, who cho- chose me for the position. That was Dr. Manier and Dr. Blanco. At Northwestern, you know, shout out to both of them. They are great friends and mentors that I have. Also faculty need mentors
3: mm-hmm. as
2: well. You know, someone to guide you through the world of academia. And uh, when I got the position offered, I mean, they had the trust in me. I think that's important thing. I trust with what you're doing. At this point, I was doing a longitudinal study on how residents evolve their grossing education. You know, by academic year, you know, how confident do you feel grossing, you know, submitting sections, measuring, staging, and now, hopefully, that will uh that academic paper.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, since they saw my involvement in the world of, you know, in grossing uh, education, they said, well, I think you will be a good fit for this. And I think you usually have good ideas. You know, you tend to have imaginative solutions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I will be honest, I was kind of terrified at first. You know, like, well, how can I handle this? I've never done directing before. But right. um, you can do it. You can do it. You get offered, take the leap, say yes, uh-huh. and you will learn on the run
1: what what were um I guess during this process, things that you learned about yourself, things that you learned about like mentorship um and I guess let's add a curveball also um yeah mentorship about yourself and about where you kind of see your self being career wise.
2: Or where do I see myself? I think uh, I'm very cemented in education. I yeah. think that's where I see my career happening. Okay. And uh, both at the residency and fellowship level and pushing more into the medical school level. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have some very interesting projects in development right now combining undergraduate and graduate medical education. dual program. Kind of like We're making pathology on steroids. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, essentially Patoma, but dedicated to clinical practice. Okay. and uh, very interested about this project you know give the relevant knowledge in pathology so when a resident reads a report they can say oh i know what they're talking about
3: right okay
2: i'm sure you have also encountered it. Like, what does it mean that is uh idh1 negative well, where well, you clear astrocytoma is that still a possible thing you know right. what about the stain what about the atrx you know, is still is this still an oligodendroglioma? Is it an astroblastoma? Oh, he's talking the truth, people. You hear I that? Am, love it. <laughs> I, I love it. I love it. I, I tell you, I, I neuropad was my second interest. You're right. Yeah, um, yeah. I was doing it, and uh, 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 you know, sometimes it's like you know, you have to answer certain clinical questions. You know, for lack of a better word, they're very. Yeah. Uneducated, like, I'm sorry for lack of a better word, it's not an uneducated question. It's like, why don't you not know what I'm talking about? And yet you are telling the patients, is this benign or malignant or atypical? Right. Yeah. So I think it's creating that connection, making pathology more accessible to our clinical side. Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. also got to teach them again. But instead of teaching, you know, well, you know, the columnar epithelium of the endometrial glands, you know, show psyllium. No, like I said, say, what is the important thing on my report? Why do you need to know? to make good decisions as a clinician i think that is a niche that we're currently trying to address you
1: know it's it's interesting because if like um if i for example didn't do surgery if i was still on the clinical side um and seeing path reports i probably would have been like okay they know what they're talking about and kind of going from there because that's like what it is like who knows what pathology to do, but you know, I'm not saying everybody thinks that, but it's like, oh, okay, like they do stuff, and okay, great, I'm gonna to talk to the patient, and I'm wondering if it, like what you're saying like sounds great because you're exposing, you're gonna expose more clinicians and residents and stuff to it, but I guess I'm wondering if it's like because starting in med school, you know, first and second year where we see pathology and it's teaching for step one, and that's like our last experience with it. I wonder if that's mm-hmm. part of the reason why. There's such a disconnect. And like third year, you go into your clinical and see patients, but like nothing, like don't even, like for me, I didn't even know like a lab existed. I know it was somewhere, but I just didn't know like where it was or what it did.
2: I think that is in a way our own fault as educators, mm-hmm. I will say. And here's why. I think whenever we give pathology lectures, and that's where I say it's so important to have a good background on how to be a good educator. Just because somebody's a good at physician and a clinician doesn't mean they're a good teacher. And that mm-hmm. I think is incredibly important and it's going to be even more important in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, with if I teach pathology, I can just read mm-hmm. you and just copy paste Robbins on, uh, on my PowerPoint and like, yeah, well, what's the point? It's absolutely a useless lecture. I can read it on my own and I will not waste time. But instead, right. you know, like what I tried to do on my lectures, you know, I actually just had a new ones. So I had to do female histology as well as I do pathology of the cervix and the female genital uh-huh. tract, is trying to see those connections, you know, essentially tell the math students, okay, you're learning these things. You have to be clear. You have to, uh-huh. I have learned that you have to point a lot on the PowerPoints because uh-huh. you say, oh yeah, the columnar epithelium, but I will tell you the vast majority of medical students don't know how to find a focus on necrosis. I tell you, what's necrosis? Like, I don't know. Uh-huh. And uh, also trying to make good clinical parallels connection to why you're learning this is important, you know, why do you have to know about E6 and E7, you know, in HPV Mm -hmm. that drives carcinogenesis. So this is why it happens. And then the low and high risks are based on their affinity of these proteins to their targets. Yeah, Yeah. Um, That's what, you know, the capsid that comes here in this virus, that's what the vaccine comes from. Um, The natural history. This is why we do screening this only this often and this much. Um, I think that connection to the clinical world and reinforcing it as mm-hmm. we go through clinical practice, which that falls into our into our academic colleagues, but also presenting PBL, I'm also involved in, I love doing PBL too with the medical students, you know, mm-hmm. how can I connect pathology to the question that you're answering? Because in the end, every medical specialty, sorry, go ahead.
1: No, no, I was going to say for, um, for listeners who are applying to med school or high schoolers, can you... Uh, say what pbl means
2: oh sorry pbl problem-based learning so essentially a group of medical students are presented with a clinical scenario and -hmm. they're given the information a little bit by bit so then they as a group they have to figure out what's going on do we come with a differential what would we like to suggest to the attending what should we order or labs or and so forth so it's Mm -hmm. it's still kind of interactive case that you solve as a group Well, speaking of that relevancy of pathology, I think it's, you know, like it's very hard to see it as a, you know, why do I have to learn histology? Why do I have to learn pathology? Mm
3: -hmm. And
2: just creating that connection to the clinical world, what it means. And two, reminding people that every specialty in medicine is applied pathology. We treat Uh things this way because we understand the pathophysiology. We understand the pathophysiology by observations in tissue, molecular studies, genetics. So everything is applied to pathology and I think for people forget this how's and whys of medicine when they start mm-hmm. practicing and they realize, oh, I don't need to know that a lymphocyte does this or like there's a columnar epithelium, but then how will you understand molar metaplasia in the endometrium? And then I start getting phone calls. Is that benign or malignant? Well right, right. metaplasia is benign. So if you mm. remember Pat, you will know this is benign.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah man that's, I I love it
1: all the stuff that you're basically you know putting in and stuff like uh all the energy and effort that you're putting in especially like I guess to our earlier question I um that I I, I asked about and you answered um like, like you you know I guess you were so interested in being ENT OBGYN and like look at where you're at right now where you're like this, like, pathology educator and it's like, I'm going to let you know what necrosis and columnar epithelium is and, and stuff like that. So, that's you know, it's amazing like, to see, like, where you started at and, like, where you're at currently and then where you eventually will, you know, be in the next, let's say, year or two, three or four years or whatever. Um, so just basically putting it all together. When you started the, uh, when you did start the surgical pathology, um... Directorship for residents and med students. Along the way, were there things that you sort of learned more about yourself, um, how you communicate, and how you mentor?
2: I think that was the greatest training in HR and people skills that I ever had. One starts learning how to address problems in a very diplomatic way. Yeah. You know, how can I get convinced people to agree with what I'm doing, with what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. it's how to get people how to convince people how to make people like you and like your ideas yeah and that is such an important skill that you have to learn in the academic world and anyone that involved in any kind of administrative position and i i that's why i think right now our chief residents are so pivotal for all this decision making and i think they're getting some of the greatest training to become leaders in their field Mm -hmm. just because they know how to deal with people and how to address problems right Okay. it made me a, a million times a far more patient person than I was before.
1: Okay. Yeah, you're going to be ENT surgeon. You're like, let's just do it and let's be done. <laughs> now you're like... You oh, know, no. I, I'm still back. like
2: that. I'm still like that. I, I <laughs> like to take action as soon as I see an opportunity to do yeah. something. Yeah. I, I like to take action to address problems on the spot. Like, you address the critical people and just implement changes on the spot. Like. Okay. I mean, the latest example of what happened is, uh, you know, there is a national shortage of surgical pathology staff, you know, with techs and PAs, and volumes keep increasing in the ORs everywhere. Like, our volumes keep increasing dramatically. And, you know, we got to a point that we're just getting a shortage, you know, we're starting to fall a little bit behind on specimens. So, well, we need to address this now. Like, it's not something that I can discuss with a committee. Yeah. So well, let me just talk to the relevant people, come up with a plan right now and implement it within four hours. To redirect the resting workflow. To start taking mm-hmm. older cases first, you know, get specimens spread, making sure everything is fixed properly, maintain our fixation times. So it, it is um well it is important to communicate also you we need to be decisive people when it comes to making decisions and implement the chain, not just say you're gonna do it just sometimes you just mm-hmm. have to be that for, you know, essentially apologize later. Right. You know, right. do it now and apologize later.
1: Okay. Um, is there any way that uh, people can follow you on social media? Hmm.
2: Yes. Yeah, so I, I, ha- I am on Twitter and Instagram. That my professional one is Novo underscore Pathology. That's mm-hmm. my uh, Twitter and Instagram. My professional Twitter and Instagram. And then there's jnovo Novo 87... And instagram that's more a personal one you know which is mostly pictures of my dog and uh, my fiance and mm-hmm. uh just showing you know like so you can show follow either one but okay. yeah i tend not to post too much on my twitter one and uh, professional one since i i know that i'm not an influencer i cannot reach the level of some other people that they have on twitter and the level of fame because i frankly just don't have the energy for it So it's mostly a few updates, but I think uh, Mm -hmm. I have made great connections despite my limited involvement.
1: Do you have any final uh, words to say for the
2: audience before we head off? I mean, I think, I mean, for different groups I do. Um, You know, for people applying to medical school, I think it's, you know, like find a good mentor, find someone to attach to uh, when you begin. People applying to residency, I think reach out to people, don't be afraid. Um, The worst thing they can say is no or ignore you and uh, start making those connections. I think that that has been very influential for some people that have been applying around and hopefully we get to see them around uh, our next batch of first year residents. And once you're a resident, I think Residents and Fellows is, uh, we're so used to being a medical student, being perfectionist, you know, always getting the top grades, doing your absolute best, um, essentially being infallible people, you know, you have to know every answer. But I think once you're in residency, it's important for us to break that paradigm, as mm-hmm. well as for us from educators, you know, like it's okay to not know, and you know, to show that vulnerability knowledge, to show those gaps and uh, ask questions, ask lots of questions. All right. So I think uh, the future of pathology is good. I think we're moving away from the very hosted like um, perfectionism attitudes of medicine. And uh, I think we are in a great position to move forward. Oh.
1: Well, thank you so much for um, joining. I appreciate the time, and I'm so glad that we all got to listen to your story um, and seeing how
2: amazing you are and will be. Uh, I'll let anyone else, someone else say that for me. I cannot say Ah. that I'm great. (laughs) No, no, no. That's one of the, I I love that quote. It was one from my attendings in residency. He told me, like, aim to be a good pathologist. Let Mm -hmm. someone, let other people call you great. Yes. Be thorough, be focused, and let other people call you great. Just aim to be good and pleased with your own work. You know, if this was your relative, are you satisfied with with how you approached it and how you worked it?
1: Hi again, friends.
0: Well, this is it for today's episode. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy day this to listen to the diversified math models. Hope you enjoyed the episode, and then hope to see you soon.